This is our first visit to the Bahamas, and Marcia and I have already been welcomed, welcomed very, very warmly. We have enjoyed our visit, and uh, we enjoy being at your church. Uh, uh, we've already talked about how Calvary Bible reminds us of our home churches. In fact, I went to a Calvary Bible church in Huntsville, Alabama, where I grew up, where my father was pastor. So I feel very much at home. And when you look at our picture, by the way, and you're wondering what it is that we're dressed in, that's Ethiopian national dress in our, our little bio thing. It's not a, uh, I was, wondered if that looked like I was a medical doctor or what, wrapped up in that white, but that's what that is, is Ethiopian national dress. Um, we've got a topic for this week that excites me greatly. We're going to be talking about what God is doing around the world and from his word, how we should be responding. We're going to be talking about not only the trends in mission, but some of the challenges that we face in mission today. We're going to talk about some of the things God is doing around the world. And we'll look at some different topics each one of our times together. Uh, tonight, for example, we're going to talk about what God has done in growing the church in Africa, Asia, and Latin America briefly. And then we're going to look at what the Word says about how we should be responding in a new era of partnership around the world. Uh, tomorrow night, specifically, we're going to be going in-depth at both the, the growth of the church, what has happened, the church especially in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean in the last 50 years, and the, the challenges that yet remain. We'll be uh, looking at that in a lot more detail as we unpack it tomorrow uh, evening. And then uh, Thursday, uh, on uh, Tuesday night, we have a panel discussion. We'll be talking about a lot of the different trends and mission from different perspectives Thursday and Friday night, we'll look at the challenge of missions in an age where there is fresh opposition against the Christian gospel and where there is incredible human suffering around the world, looking at those issues that we have to face and how God wants us to respond. So most of our times we'll be looking at an issue, but we'll also be looking at how God wants us to respond from his word. So I encourage you to come back to each one of the sessions as we focus in on a different area each one of our times together. But first of all, let's bow in prayer as we ask the Lord to get us a good start and be our teacher this morning from His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that the presence of Your Holy Spirit is here as we've just been reminded and that He is our teacher. He wrote this book, Your Word, and He is here right now in our hearts to open it up and help us understand it. We know, Lord, that the Gospel is the same year in and year out, and yet the challenges that we face around the world change. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to be equipped, and especially this morning, help us to catch the motivation that we need to have that your word opens up to us, that you are the God of all the peoples and all the nations. And in an age where everyone has their own gods, that challenges us as to why we need to make the sacrifices for mission. Holy Spirit, be our teacher, be our motivator, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For eight years, as you may read in the bio, Marsha and I were in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I was the U.S. Director for SIM. And during that time, our SIM office had a series of open houses where we invited the Charlotte community to come in and get to know something of what we were all about. Uh, one year, uh, one of the guests of 1,300 visitors we had on our campus that year was the guest of our then 23-year-older daughter, Kara. Kara was then teaching English at 8th grade in a Charlotte school. 
and she had invited one of her fellow teachers to come and enjoy all of the cross-cultural videos and food and music and artifacts that we had. And this young woman was, tra- was going around through all of these things and enjoying it when suddenly it hit her what our mission agency, SIM, was all about. She bolted over to our daughter and said, Do you mean to tell me that you people go to other countries and tell the people there that they should become Christians? How dare you impose your faith on people like that? Now, we probably wouldn't have heard something like that 30 or 40 years ago, even coming from the mouth of an unbeliever. Because though world religions have been around for hundreds and thousands of years, in predominantly Christian countries like the U.S. or the Bahamas or Canada or U.K., in predominantly Christian countries, most people favored the idea of Christian mission. It seemed like a good thing to send missionaries out to, even if they weren't Christians or strong Christians, it seemed to be an okay thing. But in the last decades, the idea that everyone not only has their own culture, which may be a good thing, but every culture has its own truth. And no one's truth is right for anyone else. So we should just leave everyone to follow their own truth even if it's their own way to God, and not bother them. The idea of pluralism has taken hold even very strongly in Christian countries like the Bahamas or the U.S. It's an idea that says, well, okay, we have our truth, and it may be a Christian truth, and that's fine. But everyone else has their own truth. Muslims have their truth. Hindus have their own truth. Buddhists have their own truth. And we would never want to talk about Christ to them. That idea now is the main line of thinking, not only in, in countries like uh, Hindu countries or Buddhist countries, but it's now the main line of thinking in most Western countries that at one time at least called themselves predominantly Christian. Now, I know here at Calvary Bible Church, no one walked into the doors this morning thinking, how dare we have a mission conference? How dare we send missionaries off to other countries? because we have a long history, a tradition of missions here. We believe Jesus is the one way to the one God. And yet sometimes I think that how dare we send missionaries attitude begins to nibble away a little bit at the edges of our Christian thinking and Christian commitment. Because missions is hard work. Missions is costly. It's, it's costly to meet some of the financial goals that Pastor Lee has just shared with us. It, it may demand that you dig a little bit deeper, that you cut back on making a purchase that you were planning on making for this year to be able to give a little bit more sacrificially for some of these projects and some of these missionaries. Missions is costly not only financially, but it's also costly to families. Ask the Pinders, the Alberries, if they enjoy sending their children and grandchildren off to far-off places and not seeing them for a long time. That's costly. I think Marcia and I didn't realize how costly it was till our own daughter went to Bolivia as a missionary. And suddenly, we felt what our parents felt when we went off to Ethiopia years ago. Separation is costly. It's costly to give up your vacation, maybe, to go and do a mission project like a project at Camp Bahamas or some other place. That's costly to do that. And sometimes it's easier for us to think, you know, 
maybe we should just kind of pull back a little bit. Uh, maybe we should make the horizons of our own spiritual responsibility just taking care of Calvary Bible Church right here in Nassau. You know, we'll, we'll come together, we'll have warm fellowship, we'll enjoy each other, we'll make sure our pastor is well provided for, and, and we'll just take care of ourselves and we'll retreat just a bit. And sometimes we even get a little bit embarrassed when one of our friends looks at us and says, uh, you mean you believe Jesus is the only way? And so why shouldn't we just go ahead and make those purchases this year and not give more? Why should we give extra time to prayer? You know, giving up a little early or staying up a little late or missing a little bit of that television program so that we can focus on, on prayer for missionaries when it's just easier to live like everybody else lives. Or, or, or why should we get to know those neighbors or those co-workers or those clients that you work with and get to know them in a way you can share Christ with them when it might be a little embarrassing if they ask you, you mean Jesus is the only way and you believe that? <laughs> why should we do mission? You know, the scripture has an age-old motivation for mission that is particularly relevant in this new era of mission, this era of pluralism, where we're challenged by a how-dare-you-do-missions attitude. That motivation for mission goes all the way back to ancient Israel, because Israel lived in a world much like ours. It was a world where every country, all of Israel's surrounding countries, had their own gods with their own truth and their own way of living. And it was very easy for God's people, Israel, to say, you know, <laughs> these other countries threaten us, kind of the way other, Christ other non-believers threaten us today. These other countries threaten us. Maybe it would be easier for us just to keep our head down. You know, we'll keep quiet. We'll stay here in the land of Israel. We'll enjoy God's blessings. We'll ignore them and hope that they ignore us. Frankly, isn't the way a lot of us Christians, we feel like doing that? today. We'll just ignore the unbelievers out there and hope they ignore us and leave us in peace. So God wrote a psalm to ancient Israel to challenge them in the midst of a pluralistic world that they lived in. And it challenges us with a fresh motivation for mission in the 21st century in the pluralistic world that we live in. It's the psalm that we read. And if you have your Bibles, please take them and open them to Psalm 96. The 96th Psalm. I keep turning around, by the way, because I want to make sure the choir knows I'm talking to them, too. You know, just in case they, looking at the back of my head, think that they can close their eyes for a minute. They never know when I'm going to turn around and look at them. Psalm 96, where we see three motivations for mission. Each one is centered around the worthiness of God. Why God is not only worthy of Israel's worship, of our worship as the people of God for this day, but why God is worthy of the world's worship. The first stanza, verses 1 to 6, the psalmist tells us that our God is worthy of the world's worship because He is the only true reality. He is the ultimate somebody in a world full of nothing nobodies. Follow with me as I read. And I'm reading from the NIV this morning. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. 
But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. The psalmist tells ancient Israel that there's to sing a new song. What makes it new? Well, this song is not just to be sung among the Israelites, God's people, but it's to be sung by all the earth, verse 1. It's to be declared among the nations, verse 3. Among all peoples, verse 3. Now, now why is this song about God to be taken out there among all the peoples and all the nations? Well, the psalmist tells us in verses 4 and 5, by comparing God to the so-called gods. The psalmist says, compare God, who's most worthy of praise, with the gods of the nations, verse 5. That word gods in verse 5 is the Hebrew word Elohim. The word idols, which means nothings or nobodies, is the word Elohim. And the writer is making a play on words. He says, the Elohim are really Elohim. That means the so-called gods, they're really nothings. They're nobodies. They think they're gods. They're treated like gods, but they're nothing. Why compare them to our God? He was the one that created everything. He's not a nothing, nobody God. He's the creator. Why these nothing, nobody gods, when they entered the ancient mythologies, they would be surrounded by lesser gods to make them look good. But our God, verse 6, when He enters His sanctuary, is surrounded by His own splendor and majesty, His strength, His glory. The psalmist says, our God is the ultimate somebody, the Creator, in a world of nothing, nobody gods. Now, the gods of the nations may have really been nothing, nobody gods, but to the ancient peoples, they were scared of them. They planted their crops and went to war based on what they thought was the will of those gods. Sometimes they even sacrificed their own children to satisfy the wrath of those gods. And the psalmist says to God's people, don't sit here and be quiet. You've got a great message for those peoples. They don't have to be afraid of those gods. They don't have to sacrifice those children to those gods. Why, you have a message, verse 2, of salvation freedom from bondage to those gods. You need to get out there and share with them. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Don't hunker down. Don't retreat back into your own little land, your own little church. Get out there because you worship the God who is the ultimate somebody. And these other gods, why? They are nothing, nobody gods. And brothers and sisters, we live in the same kind of world where most of the people of the world are following after nothing, nobody gods. Take the God of Islam, for example, which I believe is Satan's very special counterfeit to biblical faith in Christ. Many Muslims are good people, and yet Islam is a deceptive counterfeit. God reminds us that he is the ultimate somebody. Or take Hinduism with its 300 million gods. I was on an airplane not long ago going from Chicago to Delhi and sat for hours and hours by a Hindu young man. Talk with me for, we talked with hours about faith and I challenged him about faith in Christ and he was a Hindu and he said, don't you think it's so much better that just anybody could follow their own gods? Don't you think that's better? And you know, it's easy to go, well, yeah, I don't want to have to push my faith on you. But to remind him, I'm sorry, but, but none of those gods are really somebodies. They're all just 
just empty gods that have the same weaknesses and passions that a human being has. But I follow the God who's the creator of the whole heavens and the earth. I can rescue, I can offer you rescue from following after gods that don't really provide any answers. And even in a Christian country like the Bahamas, people follow nothing, nobody gods. Except we don't call them Allah or Krishna. We call them education. People think if I get just the right education, if I get my son or my daughter or myself to just the perfect university, the perfect college, then I'll get the best job. Then I'll have the best future. Or we follow the something God called career path. You know, if I can finally get to that perfect job, that perfect place in life, then I'll really have achieved. For some people, they think, you know, if I can just get someplace else, any place else but here, then I'll finally have the God. That's, what I, that's my God. I want to get to that particular spot. Some people think it's the perfect relationship. If I can find that right man, that right woman, that right guy, that right gal, then my life will be complete. And finally, for some, it becomes the ideal retirement. I imagine some people come to the Bahamas looking for their final God, the perfect retirement. And they think that if they finally get that, the retirement financial package, the perfect home, then they'll be set. See, these are also nothing, nobody gods. People are chasing after them. And when they get them, they find their lives are just as empty and unfulfilling. When we share our faith in Christ, when we send missionaries around the world, we're not imposing our faith on anyone. We're offering them the same rescue, the same salvation. You don't have to follow a nothing, nobody God. Let us talk to you about the God who is the ultimate somebody in a world full of nothing, nobody gods. Back in 1982, the Lord took Marcia and me to Ethiopia, where we ended up serving for 19 years. But during our first years there, Ethiopia was governed by a Marxist communist government. The church was largely closed down. The government had confiscated the church buildings and the church had gone underground. And there was persecution of believers. And in the face of a very difficult life, the Ethiopian believers believed that their God was the ultimate somebody. Even though all of society was telling them that God was dead and that the ultimate God was Karl Marx and his philosophy and and, uh, economics. And so, in the face of persecution, the believers talked about God. When there was a famine and people went hungry, believers prayed to God to provide for them. And they told their friends and neighbors that they were praying. Ethiopia was in the middle of a civil war at that time, a war so brutal that when young men were drafted into the service, many families would have a funeral for them, even before they were got notice of a death, because they didn't expect to see them ever again. So they went ahead and just had a funeral. Uh, There was persecution in which believers suffered for their faith and they often shared their faith in Christ with their persecutors. And as God answered prayer, they shared widely. When God brought the young men back from the service sometimes, they would share with their neighbors, this is our God who has done this. When God provided food, sometimes from abroad through Christian agencies, believers would share it with friends and neighbors and says, our God has sent this. And believers prayed. Marsha and I remember a prayer meeting where we, we got one Ethiopian woman stood up and she prayed and she says, Lord, remember, look at the tears of the mothers. Look at the tears of the children. Rescue us from this. And the implication was this regime who's brought all this suffering. One month from that prayer meeting, the Marxist government in Ethiopia came crashing down. 
And when it did, believers shared with their friends and neighbors again. This is not Ronald Reagan's Star Wars or uh, Gorbachev's Perestroika that has done this. This is our God who is the ultimate somebody who has done this. And during those 17 years of Marxism, because the Ethiopian believers faithfully believed that their God was the ultimate somebody and talked about him to their neighbors through that, the church grew from about a million and a half to between six and seven million evangelical believers. Four times growth. Because they embraced the fact that their God was the ultimate somebody. You see, this is why we make the sacrifices for mission. This is why we may give up a little bit of extra time to pray for missionaries. This is why we we decide to defer a purchase a little bit longer so we can give a little bit more. This is why we endure the separation. And this is why maybe we think, Lord, maybe you want me. Me to to, to go and spend some time or a chunk of my life serving you in a cross-cultural situation. Because you're the ultimate somebody. And I have a message of salvation for those people. Rescuing them from following nothing, nobody gods. The first motivation for mission in a pluralistic world, our world today, is that the Lord is worthy of the world's worship because He is the ultimate somebody in a world full of nothing, nobody gods. But there's a second reason, a second motivation for mission in verses 7 to 9, where the psalmist tells us our God is worthy of the world's worship because He is beautifully, attractively holy. Follow as I read verses 7 to 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. The NASB that we read this morning had worship Him in holy attire. The NIV, worship Him in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Now this time, the psalmist invites not just all the peoples out there to worship God, but individual families of nations. It's like he's picking out each ethnic group. He's saying the Hausa, the Zulu, the Uzbek, the Uyghur, the Hue, the Vietnamese, the Tamil. Each individual people from around the world, you're welcome to come in and worship our God right in His own temple. And what compels them to come in? Verse 9 tells us it's the splendor of His holiness. Some translations like the NESB have the idea that we're to worship God in our own holiness, which is not a bad idea. But I think the better translation is that the holiness is God's holiness here. We're to worship the Lord overwhelmed by His holiness. You couldn't see me do that. It was like... (gasps) You see, we're, we're to see how holy God is, and it's beautifully holy. He's attractively holy. We see His holiness and... It gets our gaze. It gets our fix. It gets our eye. We, we want to, we're attracted to it. We want to be part of it. It overwhelms us. It says that when we see His holiness, verse 9, that, that people will tremble before Him. That word tremble is the word used in the Old Testament to describe a woman who is going through the contractions of childbirth. Now, I was with my wife for all the birth of all three of our children. And believe me, though I've been impressed and overwhelmed with her many times, I was never more impressed than when she went through those those three births. Because the power of those contractions 
to alter her physiology and push those little lives out into the world, believe me, it overwhelmed any other focus of our attention. And that's what God's beautiness does, His holiness. When people see His holiness, they're attracted to it. It overwhelms any other focus of their attention. And they want to be with Him. They want to be near Him. They want to follow Him. That's the impression here. When people see His holiness, they will want to follow Him. And that is still happening today, brothers and sisters. Several years ago, I was in Amsterdam in the Netherlands and had an opportunity to talk with missionaries and evangelists from all over the world. One of the men that I met and talked with was an evangelist from Pakistan. This was in the year 2000. It was before the Taliban had taken control of Afghanistan. And it was almost impossible for any missionaries to be in Afghanistan. So talking to this Pakistani brother about his work, I wondered if maybe he had had the chance to visit or minister to any Afghan refugees who had come across the border into Pakistan. So I asked him and he kind of looked around to see if anybody was listening to us. And he said, well, actually, brother, I've been in Afghanistan several times. Wow. Into the land of the Taliban. And I asked him, do you know any Afghans who have become Christians, believers? And he said, well, I actually know of about 100 Afghans who have trusted Christ as Savior. Fifty have already been martyred for their faith. You see, he told me, if it's known that they are a follower of Jesus, the Taliban will kill them immediately. Wow. So then I asked him this question. Brother, tell me, why would anyone, any Muslim, come to Christ from following Islam in Afghanistan knowing that if they were discovered, it would mean their death. What motivates them to come to Jesus? And he said this, it's the beauty of Jesus' holiness. You see, they say there are other prophets in Islam who were not holy, and Muslims know that. But when they see Jesus, when they read the Gospels, if we can give them the Gospels, they see the beauty of His holiness, and they're attracted to them. They want to follow Him, and they do follow Him. The beauty of Jesus' holiness still attracts people today. Now, we live in a world that is generally an ugly, angry, in-your-face world where people are demanding. If some of you work in the tourist industry, I can imagine you face demanding people all the time in your work who they want it and they want it now. People are like that all over our world. Jesus' holiness stands in contrast to most of the people in our world who are demanding and who are angry and are always pushing because His attraction, His, his holiness was a, a winsome kind of a holiness. It was a holiness that people wanted to be around Him because He was attractive. It's a holiness that people are only going to see today through the lives of His followers when we choose to be that kind of gracious meek and winsome person that people will look at us and they won't see a holier-than-thou Christian that won't be with them, but they'll see an attractive person that they want to be around. And it's not always easy to be that kind of person. It usually comes at the hardest times. Marcia and I travel quite a bit for ministry, and one time we were making a, a trip from one spot to another, and we had a very tight airplane connection to make. Uh, we got off one airplane, which was a little late. We grabbed our carry-on baggage and we rushed through the terminal to the other uh, gate. And we got there and I noticed that the security door was closed. And the lady behind the counter was there and I rushed up and 
I had my boarding passes, our boarding passes. I said, man, we just got in. We raced all across the terminal, still breathing hard. And uh, here's our boarding passes. And I see the plane is still there. So you can just open the security door. You can let us on. And uh, she took our passes and she said, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. We just closed the door, as you can see. And, and we'll have to put you on another flight. And let's see, another flight is, uh, I can put you on five hours from now. Now, I didn't say this, but this is what I started thinking. Five hours from now, are you crazy? Now listen, this is a really boring airport. There's nothing to do here. There's hardly any place to get anything to eat right now. What am I going to do for five hours? I didn't bring enough work for five hours. And you know, if your airline had been on the ball, they would have phoned ahead and they would have told you we were coming in on our way. Five hours, all you have to do is open the door. Come on. That's what I was thinking. Husbands, isn't it frightening how your wives know what you're thinking before you say it? I was just opening my mouth when Marcia kind of tugged me on the side of my shirt and she leaned over and she said to me, Jesus, holiness. <laughs> you know, airline workers receive a lot of, see a lot of difficult people, a lot of angry people. What a marvelous opportunity for me to show Jesus' holiness. You see, it usually comes at the worst time. When you're at the back of a long line in the grocery store, you know, and the play, people are moving very, very slowly and you're losing your patience. Or when somebody cuts you off in traffic. Or when, when your neighbor is being very, very bothersome or irritating to you. You see, those are times when we, we want to get even. But they're times when we can show Jesus' holiness to people around us in our ugly, angry, in-your-face world. You see... When we recognize that our Lord is worthy of the world's worship because He is beautifully holy, we'll be motivated to reflect that holiness and show that holiness off to people around us because that will attract them to Jesus. They'll see a different kind of person because we're reflecting the holiness of Jesus. And our God is worthy of their worship because He is beautifully, attractively holy. He's also the ultimate somebody in a world full of nothing nobodies. And finally, verse 10 to 13, the writer tells us that our God is worthy of the world's worship because He is the coming judge and king, and He is righteous in His judgment. Follow with me as I begin reading verses 10 to 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the field be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. Seas thundering, Fields partying, trees singing. What's all this about? Well, the writer is telling us that the creation is looking forward to something. They're looking forward to the time when God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is going to come to the earth and rule it. And He's going to straighten out the mess that we have made of the world. He's going to judge with righteousness. He's going to judge in truth. He's going to judge in equity. He's going to fix the mess that we've made of the world. And the creation can hardly wait. Now, now we live 
in a world that we have made a big mess of. Israel did. In fact, 1 Chronicles chapter 16 tells us that this psalm was first sung uh, when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. It was a time that followed the period of the judges. You remember that period from Israel's history when Israel had been attacked from outside? They had been misruled by a bunch of bad rulers on the inside. It was a time when, when society was a mess. And yet as the ark came into Jerusalem and they sang this song, Israel proclaimed that our Lord reigns. We sang it. The choir sang it just a few minutes ago. Our God reigns. He reigns here and now. And they were announcing that as we begin to follow His law, that we will, be, we will see the, the first evidences of His coming future reign. We'll see righteousness and equity begin to show itself here on the world. And under King's David, King David's reign, Israel experienced just a taste of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And the psalmist is telling us that our God's coming is a motivation to proclaim to the nations that He's worthy of their worship. Now think of the mess that our world is in. You don't have to think very long or even watch your TV sets very long. Look at Libya right now and what's happening there as the ruler of the country slaughters his own people, trying to stay in power, cling to power. Look at what we hear sometimes, the double talk from uh, some the Islamic community talking about how it's a religion of peace when we know that there are Christians suffering, being persecuted for their Christian faith in Muslim countries. Or maybe when you, we hear about strong praying on the weak, as in after the recent earthquake in Haiti, how people in some of the tent cities have been preyed upon by those who would take advantage of them. Or maybe you remember hearing after the tsunami in Southeast Asia a few years ago, how some children were rendered as orphans and others came along and kidnapped them to sell them into the brothels in Southeast Asia. You, you look at the injustice of this, and it's enough to make you angry, furiously angry. But it should also be enough to motivate us to want to do something about this. And the psalmist is telling us what we can do. We can proclaim to the nations that there is a time coming when Jesus will return to the earth and He's going to reign in a kingdom that will fix all of the mess, all that will make everything righteous and will restore the world to the way it was intended to be and they can enter that kingdom and enjoy that kingdom by trusting Him here and now. And we, as we begin to display those same kingdom values in our ministries of human compassion and human need, we can reach out and show the world a little bit of this kingdom righteousness as we seek to meet people's need and work for righteousness and justice here on earth, right here and now. And so we can minister and, and go to Haiti, perhaps, and help Sister Phyllis in her ministry and care for some of those people in Jesus' name and show them just a little taste of coming kingdom righteousness here and now and tell them about the coming kingdom in Jesus who can be their entryway into it. Or we can uh, participate in projects such as an AIDS project in Africa that is ministering to people in suffering and human need. And we can pray for those AIDS victims. We can pray for those in Islamic countries who are suffering under persecution. But we can also pray for the persecutors and pray that God will send the, His Word to them so they will come to Christ. They will trust in Him as we will talk about later in this week. How people who are sometimes threatening Christians, how God gives us the opportunity to reach out and share with them the persecutors in love. We can reach out and show a taste of coming kingdom righteousness here and now 
Because our God is the coming judge and king. And if we believe it, we'll begin to live it. We'll live as if he is the Lord of the brothels of Bangkok and the tent cities of Haiti. And among the child soldiers, for example, of Liberia and Uganda, young boys and young men that have been kidnapped and forced to serve, will believe that God is ruler there and will begin to pray and live the righteousness of Jesus here and now so we can show that righteousness to those people. Because our God is worthy of the world's worship because He is the coming righteous judge and king. He's worthy of the world's worship because He's beautifully holy. He's worthy of the world's worship because he is the ultimate somebody in a world full of nothing, nobodies. When God's worthiness grips us, it changes everything. See, it changes the way we look at our bank accounts or our wallets or our purses. We realize, as Pastor Lee said this morning, that we don't own anything. It's all God's and he's worthy of all of it. So, Lord, I, I, I want to give to proclaim your worthiness to the nations. It impacts the way we pray. We're going to want to set aside special blocks of time and think through the nations and and the continents and the peoples and learn more about their needs. We'll talk more about how to find out about that tonight. Find out about their needs and pray for them specifically and in great detail. We'll impact how we look at our vacation time. Maybe we'll want to give up some of it and and go on a a short-term mission trip to help out someplace. It impacts the way we raise our children. We raise them with a vision for using their lives to impact the world for the kingdom of God. It impacts everything. Sometimes it even impacts Friday nights. Friday nights? Some time ago when I was still with SIM and uh, I'd come home on a Monday. It was a very difficult day at work and I'd had a lot of problems to deal with. And I was already thinking about the weekend. You celebrate the weekend in the Bahamas the way Americans do? Well, I was already looking forward to the weekend. And I walked into the door and Marcia greeted me and she said, I know how I want to spend Friday night. I thought, Friday night, what do I want to do? Well, maybe just get a good video and sit down and relax and curl up with my wife and enjoy that. Maybe have a dinner with some good friends and enjoy some fellowship. What do you want to do Friday night, Marcia? She said to me, you know, I've been watching two ladies that take their walk up and down the street every day. They're dressed in Islamic garb. I think they're Muslims. And today I saw where they went. They went down the street and they went into this one particular house at the end of the street. I think I'd like to go visit them on Friday night. I thought, great. I was already looking forward to clocking out of being a missionary on Friday night. Okay, if that's the way you want to spend Friday night, let's do it. So all week I thought, oh, I don't even have Friday night to look forward to this week. But God started convicting me. I was actually studying this passage that week. And the Lord said, Steve, am I worthy? Am I worthy of the whole world's worship? Am I worthy of Friday night? Okay, Lord, I hear you. Friday night. All right. So Friday came. I came home from work. And Marcia was waiting at the door with a basket of baked goods that she had made. and was ready to go, so... We walked down the street. I remember as I walked down the street, I thought, Lord, I don't even know what to say to these people. I knock on this guy's door and what do I even say? Help, help. So I knocked on the door and a guy opened the door and uh, from his appearance, he appeared to have come from a country in the Middle East someplace. He was wearing shorts and flip-flops, but I thought, okay. Um, I said, hi, um, we moved into this area a few years ago, but there's a lot of our neighbors we haven't met yet, and we hadn't gotten to know you, so we thought we'd come down and introduce ourselves. (laughs) 
what's he going to say? And he said to me, oh, this is marvelous. He, oh, this is so wonderful. He says, people back in our home country drop in and visit like this all the time. But so few people here in America do. Oh, you're so welcome. Please come in, come in. And we went in and we met uh, Mark, who was from Iran and had immigrated to the United States and was managing a convenience store there. And he brought out his son, Ali, and we met Ali. And his sister-in-law, Miriam, was there. His wife had gone out. And, and we talked for a while, and Marcia brought out her baked goods. And he said, oh, and he, Miriam went in. She brought out some Pepsis, and we sat around, and we started talking. And, and I noticed there was a tapestry on the wall that looked like Arabic writing. So I said, oh, tell me about that. He said, oh, that is Farsi. This is the language of Iran, Persia, where we're from. And this is written in Farsi, and it's the names of the four prophets of Shia Islam. Now, I had studied that and knew about that, but I said to him, oh, tell me about that. Tell me about Islam and Shia. So he started telling me all about it. Yeah, thank you very much. It's interesting. And I looked over, and there was a bronze pot, a coffee pot that was decorative on the side, or a teapot, I guess. And I said, oh, that reminds me of the, uh, the coffee pots we had in Ethiopia. He said, oh, you were in Ethiopia? I said, yes. He says, what were you doing there? So I told him. And before I knew it, we had spent a marvelous hour and a half with Mark and Ali and Miriam getting to know them. And for the rest of the time we lived in Charlotte, every time I would see him, I'd go up and we'd talk and build a relationship. As far as I know, now Mark never trusted Christ as Savior. But he had a chance to hear a little bit and see a little bit of the worthy God that we worship. He's worthy of the world's worship because he's beautifully holy, because he's the ultimate reality, because he's the coming judge and king. And it even affects Friday nights. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this motivation for mission that you gave all of us in your word. Lord, so often we get caught up in the values of the world and, and even the pluralism of the world begins to affect us. Father, mission in this next century is going to be in a very pluralistic world and we have to know why we're doing it. I pray, Father, that we'll be overcome with your worthiness. That it'll so overcome that we won't be embarrassed. So overcome that we'll be ready to make the sacrifices. And Lord, may we proclaim your worthiness to the nations and to our neighbors right around us. In Jesus' name, amen.